Welcome to the State of Sound podcast, produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. A companion series to the blockbuster exhibit, The State of Sound, a world of music from Illinois. Now playing at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. All right, welcome to the State of Sound podcast. I am Lance Trauser, the director of exhibits here at the ALPLM, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Jeff, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, great. So, you know, the, the purpose of this exhibit, the State of Sound, I was trying to make a case that Illinois has really offered the world some amazing music and musicians. And, you know, we reached out to you and, and a lot of other artists uh, during the pandemic to uh, borrow some artifacts to help tell that story. And uh, again, we appreciate you being involved in the exhibit. But uh, I really wanted to ask you a little bit about your upbringing in Illinois and, and essentially the culture in which you found yourself and how that sort of played into your musical development. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in uh, Southern Illinois, uh, across the river from St. Louis. I guess a lot of people would say that that's not all the way south in Southern Illinois, but, but um, Southern Illinois in terms of uh, where most people in Illinois right. live. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it, it was a, a little bit isolated. I have to, you know, say, uh, even though we weren't that far from a, a pretty big city, we didn't tend to go there a whole lot. So, um, uh, I'm not sure, uh, what cultural <laughs> references I would have other than the radio and and maybe just some sort of uh, oral tradition that that seemed to be around when I was growing up with my uncles and my brother. I mean, my uncles and my cousins playing guitars and stuff like that at family gatherings. And, and was it essentially that's how you got your interest in music is from your family? Um, I think from my family's records, right. <laughs> you know, I, I was, a I was the youngest by, by 10 years in my family. So everybody was pretty much gone by the time I came around, I was kind of like the youngest and, and uh. only child. And so I had a lot of, uh, uh, loneliness or solitude, I guess, growing up and records became my friends pretty quickly. And they, luckily they had left a lot of really cool records around. Um, my aunt and, and my sister both bought a lot of really great Beatles, Motown singles and things like that. And Bob Dylan. And, and so I lucked out in a, a, with a treasure trove of pretty cool records to get me, you know, I don't know, me company and for the most part, but also kind of really inspire me. And then not that long after that, my brother came back from college, I guess when I was in my early, well, probably before I was a teenager even, and gave me a big crate of records that he had accumulated uh. at college that were was bizarre, you know, just kind of like for the time being, for the time.
there's anything to this, you know, Midwest sensibilities or work ethic that played a part in sort of your musical career? We, we kind of pride ourselves on, on this, you know, sort of straightforwardness and this, uh, the sense that, you know, that the Midwest has, uh, you know, something very authentic. Uh, yeah, I think that my experience has been uh, that those things, uh, those um, common traits that you find in Midwesterners uh, really lend themselves well to being in a band. I guess the only thing uh, that would be detrimental is our, uh, habit of sometimes being a little bit too agreeable, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and I think that sometimes in a band or at least in a music making environment, you, um, you benefit from, from, uh, from pushing back a little bit here and there, but yeah, my, my dad worked, my dad worked hard. Um, my mom worked hard everybody that I saw growing up that was uh, doing well in their life was, you know, uh, you know, had seemed to have endless energy. My aunt, my, and my aunt Gail was, I don't know if I've ever seen her tired, you know, it's just a weird thing. So, um, but I definitely, I definitely, I like working. So I don't know if that's a Midwestern thing or if it's just, uh, the luck of the draw, but I, I enjoy work. I find it very enjoyable to, to feel like I'm, right. I'm working. Your dad worked on the railroads, isn't that correct? Yeah. You can't yeah. get much more Midwest than that. Yeah, for 46 years. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, yeah, he, he dropped out of high school when my mom got pregnant and got a job at the uh, Altman Southern Railways. Uh, helping, I guess, you know, kind of the transition between um, diesel and, and uh, old locomotives at the time, I guess. He worked in the pits underneath the trains, and eventually somebody decided that he was pretty smart or recognized that he was pretty smart and sent him to uh, do a, like a summer program in, in Arizona where he learned how to uh, program computers oh, wow. with punch cards. So he got, he got a promotion up into the the um uh, the control tower of the uh, switching wow. okay so um skipping ahead sort of to yeah. your career many in the media have described uh your your first big man uncle tupelo as a sort of the first alternative country artist uh, specifically the no depression uh, album in 1990 is this recognition that you sort of realized as a genre developing sort of in real time or is it something that it needed to sort of happen and you could look back and say oh i was a part of that i mean how did the, how did that all happen to get you know to to come together at least from your perspective well um, I mean, at the time and for a long time after, I've always, you know, felt like we felt compelled to push back a little bit and, and argue the case that country music uh, has always been a part of rock and roll, um, and, uh, that we weren't, you know, really doing anything that, that different, but, um, uh, you know, we, the genres were getting more specified at that time. It seemed like, you know, like Rolling Stones had lots of country sounding right. songs and they would never be called anything other than a rock and roll band. 
Um, and even bands later than that would be like bands like X that had uh, was, they had songs that had a country element and and, and uh, so we always push back. But having said all of that, like as as they get older, I do see that you know every generation kind of needs its band uh, or a little bit of um, I don't know some some messenger for some of those same ideas and and I do see that at that particular time we we facilitated that and and um, it makes me happy but I I don't like take a great deal of you know pride in myself as an innovator <laughs> or anything. Yeah, I, I I don't know how how often you would sort of refer to yourself in a pioneering state. I get that, but that's interesting that it's it's changed a little over time. With with uh, with your experience with Uncle Tupelo, what sort of lessons did you learn? Uh, you know, in the next phase of your career, in the next band, what what, what were your takeaways from your experience in Tupelo uh, that that sort of helped you evolve and and that you have benefited from uh, as far as the Wilco band. Um, well, I, I don't know. By the time, well, by the time Uncle Tupelo ended, I mean, Uncle Tupelo only made four records, but I've been playing in a band since, you know, early in high school. So, uh, I had a, I mean, I felt seasoned <laughs> by the time I started Wilco. Uh, I kind of felt like I knew how to, to, um, you know, it's it's weird, you know. You take for granted all the little things that people do to to make a band right. go. <laughs> um, but even setting up your gear in the right uh, configuration on stage, and and putting your pedals in the right order, and right. guitar pedals, and um, taping things down, and you learn just the, uh, a lot of the sure. tricks of the trade. So um, by the time Wilco came around, I felt like I was pretty adept at that part of it the creative side of it i think i was still learning how to um write songs for myself uh um i i think in uncle tupelo this is a pretty midwestern trait i guess i, I felt like a, a people pleaser sure. to some degree i really kind of wanted my songs to fit next to to jay right. jay Farrar's songs and and i think i tried to absorb that atmosphere you know um and 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 fit in with um, the overall aesthetic of what we were trying to do together. Oh, sure, absolutely. And with regards to the the, the sort of formation of Wilco and, and the career arc, uh, which you know has really spanned quite a significant amount of time now, you had you've had lots and lots of critical acclaim. You've had I, I just recently watched your your documentary um, how to you know how to break a uh, how to broken heart and. And you you know got a Grammy in in two thousand five, um, you know, it's kind of interesting um, about how regarded the band is. How is the critical acclaim and the and the peer? I mean, the amount of collaborations you've done, it, it's it's obvious that people look to you and your band as 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 someone to be regarded musically. That must you must garner some real appreciation for. Uh, your, for, you know, the, the, ador, you know, adoration from your peers, how does that really impact you and, and, and affect you? Um, you know, it, it's a, uh, it's really nice to be 
acknowledged. <laughs> Everybody, I don't think anybody really has a problem with being um, uh, regarded well. <laughs> you know, we, you know um, <clears throat> but I don't know how much, uh, you know, there's uh, putting yourself out into the world also draws a lot of scrutiny and and in in this day and age there's um, a fair amount of trolling that would go on like in something as innocuous as a picture of a fluffy kitten you know like people can find almost anything to to complain about almost anything and and so you see both things and and I try not to let either one of them be that weigh that heavily on what I do from day to day the sustaining part of it for me has always been able to uh, being able to work at writing songs and feel like I'm getting better at playing the guitar and singing and um, all that other stuff I guess it would be worse if it was I mean I, I can imagine I would have less energy for it if it was being met with like complete indifference, <laughs> you know? right. but, um, so I, but I, but I don't, I, I don't know. I have a tough time over, uh, emphasizing that side of it for myself because gotcha. I, I kind of don't want to get a, addicted to needing that because the parts of it that I love, uh, to do are so sustaining in and of themselves. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose if you don't focus too much on the positive or the negatives, you can, or, or the over, you know, on either side, the extremes, if you will, it allows you to kind of clear your, your pathway forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to mention that uh, the guitar that you loaned us is on display in a, in a rather large case that also includes some materials from the very first Farm Aid here in Illinois, in Champaign. And I know that Wilco has had a number of Farm Aid uh, affiliations. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about the guitar you loaned us, its sort of story, and, and specifically your, your um, you know, recollections or understanding or the importance of Farm Aid? Um, you're going to have to refresh my memory. Which guitar did we end up sending? It was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was almost a year ago. It was, it's, it's one of your, it, it's a green telly. Uh, and it's one that, that you sort of, uh, Frankenstein together the way your manager described it. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I used to play that guitar a lot on stage. Yeah. I remember, I know which one it is now. Um, uh, yeah, Farmade. I mean, <clears throat> I think the first Farmade was in was it in Champagne or yep. Bloomington Normal? Champagne. Which, yep. Yeah, Champagne. That happened when I was in high school. Um, do you know what the year was? Is it eighty four? Eighty five. Eighty five. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my senior year in high school. So I I just remember everybody coming. Uh, uh, like some, I didn't get to go, but I had a lot of friends that drove up for it, and uh, uh, it, was a, it was a big deal. And oh, so, huge. yeah, it's a huge deal. So many, many years later, being asked to do it, and we've done it three or four times, maybe. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's great to be a part of it, and and um, 
I always, I'm always kind of proud that the first one yeah, was no, in it's, Illinois. It's interesting. I think I read that you were at least 98, 2005, and 2008, as I recall, but I, I, I couldn't track down all the times you've been a part mm-hmm. of it. You know, and, and they haven't, obviously, most of those concerts haven't been in Illinois, but mm-hmm. the first one was humongous. It was at the campus of uh, University of Illinois, and and it had a, a, a crazy variety of artists that it, it really focused, I mean, actually, it didn't focus on any particular genre. I think Bon Jovi played or something like that. So it was a right. it was a crazy uh, conglomeration of, of artists. Uh, the, um, didn't like, you talk, go ahead. Didn't, like, was, wasn't Dylan there or something? Was Dylan there? I, I believe, yeah, I believe Dylan was at like, the first one. And only yeah. up until recently, I think Neil Young has been at all of them. I think this, this yeah. last one during the pandemic, I, I think he decided... Uh, that he shouldn't do it during the pandemic, but there's there's been some that that have yeah. been at all of them, and uh, but it's always been one of those ones. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's an easy one to support. You were supporting small, you know, family farms. Uh, you would think that there isn't anything. You know, uh, there is no downside to supporting. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, agriculture, uh, especially small ag- agriculture right. um, in our, especially in our state. Right. You talked a little bit about um, being from the Midwest and having sort of that agreeable, um, uh, you know, aspect to your personality. And, and you have had some amazing collaborations in your career. Uh, one of them I just wanted to ask about how it came together and what your takeaways were uh, with Mavis Staples, because she's featured in our exhibit as well. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, Mavis and I always um, have uh, a conf- like slightly um, different takes on how we got together. <laughs> and I think it's, be- I think it's because it was kind of like an arranged marriage or something, you know, uh, I think her, pa- I think her people told her that I wanted to meet with her about for help, you know, maybe seeing if I could produce one of her records. And the way it was presented to me was, Mavis wants to meet you <laughs> to see if you want to, you know, if you'd be interested in producing one of her records. I think we were both kind of, um, you know, set up to to see to, to get together by our by our respective people. Um, in arranged marriage. In arranged marriage, yeah, <laughs> like a blind date, something, uh, and. Um, we met and with, I met with her and Yvonne, her sister, um, uh, who passed away recently. Rest mm-hmm. in peace. Yeah. Um, we, I, I drove down to the South side and we sat in one of the diners down there and, and I just drank a, you know, a couple gallons of, of iced tea and we talked and, um, it was easy. We, I don't know. We, from the very beginning, there's a, we have a, I don't know. We just have a chemistry or, you know, some, some connection. Uh, I'm not a super metaphysical new agey guy, but I do think that there are, you know, times where you're, you can't really explain how you feel so familiar with somebody. And, um, that's, I think that was the case for myself. And, and, um, and since then it's just been, you know, I feel like we've just been part of the same family. She's she's adopted my kids because neither <laughs> of their grandmothers are alive, oh. and um, so she gets she lets them call her grandma Mavis. Oh, that's awesome! And yeah, so um, 
about the coolest thing ever. That's pretty pretty <laughs> damn cool. All right. Well, and it's funny because you mentioned your kids. Uh, the first time I ever saw your sort of family unit uh, was a part of this relatively obscure um, documentary when you guys all went to New Zealand for the Oxfam project with Neil Finn from Crowded House. Right. And you and your family are in the, and this is like turned sort of right around 2000, 2001. I can't even remember when it was, but um, you know, your kids were really little and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's such a lovely uh, project that they were doing down there. And, and the other artist that joined you in New Zealand, that was kind of the first time, you know, we got a glimpse of your family and then, uh, your pandemic experience, I really wanted to touch on because the Tweety show and, and, and your, and your, and your kids and Spencer and everybody being involved, just give me just a, a little taste of how that all came together and, and, and what your takeaways on that is. Well, um, my wife is like, um, she's, she has the entertainment or media taste of a teenage girl. <laughs> and so she spends a lot of time on social media and TikTok and things like that. And she, you know, she really enjoys it. And so she, for a while, had been talking about, you know, streaming something live on Instagram just to see if it was fun, a fun thing to do. And then, you know, Wilco was out on the road and the tour got canceled right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we, yeah. we came home and, and, um, and, um, Susie was, you know, we were just talking about how a lot of people that Susie was seeing online and on the different chat groups that follow Wilco, how disappointed everybody was and how uh, miserable the idea of not being able to attend concerts for, and, you know, at the time, who knows how long we were looking at. Um, I think there was some, uh, some hope, uh, wishful thinking at that time that it would just be a couple of months. Right. But boy, whatever it was, it just felt it felt awful. And and so you know, from my perspective, it was a it was uh, we basically just started like streaming from our house, from our living room. Yeah, and it felt really right to me. On my it was on my wife's Instagram account. Um, because we were, it's a really rare moment that maybe some generations never even have that we're all experiencing the same thing at the same time, at least maybe globally, even, um, that's a really uncommon thing. So there aren't any stages. There aren't really, um, I mean, there's still hierarchies, but the hierarchies are really much narrower when everybody has to fear the same, you know, thing, uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. I but what felt really good about it is, is like we're just acknowledging that there aren't any stages, and 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 we're trying to get get through this. And this is what we're doing to get through it. We're singing songs to each other and hanging out and trying to take advantage of of being you know trapped in a house together and. And I think it was a really sincere, sweet impulse that my wife had to share that with people, you know. Well, it just seems so very genuine. Uh, I would say it it definitely breaks a lot of the, you know, sort of rock star molds, if you will, to see you guys in such a... (laughs) 
familiar uh, setting and, and, you know, with your, with your kids, you know, and all their personalities uh, coming forward. I just, yeah. I, I just thought it, it just had a real genuineness to it. And I think uh, it really, I, I bet you it really helped a lot of people through the pandemic because it was extremely popular and, oh. and, and, and you're, you're selling your wife a little short. She's got some serious uh, uh, cred. Um, I read up about her as well she, as a talent scout, and I'm from the Chicago area. Oh, yeah. I remember Lounge Jacks very well. A, extremely yeah, yeah. important no, club. No, I didn't mean to sell her short at all. And she's a she's a she's a she's a formidable uh, <laughs> person for sure. Like Absolutely, she's, she's created them. I mean, she was a center, uh, a key part of uh, the scene in Chicago for many, oh, yeah. many years. And so, um, so yeah, you should do a whole episode where you talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> I could. She's got, she's got a she's, lot of great she's connections. She's part of yeah. Illinois rock history. Absolutely, she is. Well, you know, I want to thank you again for uh, giving us some of your time, for loaning us uh, your cool guitar that everybody's really enjoying. Uh, you know, the story of, of Wilco and un- Uncle Tupelo is very important uh, for us. Uh, we think that that particular genre specifically is, is a good story for us to tell because it has its roots in, in Midwest. Uh, we, we also tell mm-hmm. the house music story here because that has its roots here as well. Right. So thank you again, Jeff, for taking time. We appreciate well, you being on our podcast. I love, I love, uh I love that museum and that, that, uh, it's one of our favorite places as a family. So thank you for, for helping keep that, that going and making it so vibrant. Well, it really you. is one of the best. Yeah. I appreciate that. You're welcome here anytime. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, Jeff. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye. This has been the state of sound podcast produced by the Abraham Lincoln presidential library and museum. To hear other episodes and more information about the exhibit, The State of Sound, A World of Music from Illinois, visit musicfromillinois.com.